Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. On this week's Truth and Movies, protests, chartists and anime artists will be talking about Mike Lee's eagerly anticipated historical drama, Peter Lou. Prince, thing my bit, ain't gonna give paper for a scrap of paper that's come out with from Lancashire. As well as the heart-swelling Japanese anime Mirai from director Mamoru Hosada. And a second dose of the actor's favourite director, Mike Lee, his 1993 classic Naked is in the film club. We haven't been formally introduced, have we, love? No. Now we've been sat here in embarrassing silence all afternoon. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So I'm Nick Dunkoff, and I'm filling in for another week. I think Michael is back next week, so this might be my final time for a while. It's been an absolute pleasure, but I shouldn't really be saying that at the beginning of the podcast, should I? I should be saying that at the end. What I should be saying at the beginning is hello to the people that I'm going to be chatting to today. So that's hello to Beth Webb. Hello. Hello. And hello to Camberlo Campbell. Hello. Hello. How are you both doing? Excellent. Thank you. Beautiful autumnal morning this morning. It's a lovely day, although yeah. a little bit nippy. It is that, yeah, yeah, brisk walk to to warm you up. Well, I hope your brains are both sharp, because that's what I need today. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, Mike Lee's Peterloo in a second, which seems to have been universally lauded. We'll discuss whether we agree with that (laughs) or not. But um, the first thing we should open with is a bit of correspondence. And we had quite a big reaction to what I was talking about on last week's pod, which was what's the best cast in the worst film. And... um, Already, before we even started with the mics on this morning, we've had a little bit of talk about Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula because that came up quite a lot. Yeah, I don't understand why everyone has suddenly picked this as the film to dunk on it because it's there's so many worse options, even with just Keanu Reeves in. There's <laughs> the a lot to role. enjoy there as well, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't have any beef against Keanu. That's a bad start. <laughs> if you're talking about horror movies around the same time, Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein's got a pretty good cast as well, and that is, I think, a much worse film than than Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's oh Dracula. Yes. Oh, that's a uh, that was a big favourite of mine for that. The a moment when De Niro's monster punches a hole in someone, then the heart beats in his hand, might be the best worst thing I've seen in a horror movie. So what else have we got? Let's see. Uh, we've got Sean McHugh got in touch to say, "I love nocturnal animals." 
Although somebody else has suggested nocturnal animals. Mm. I don't know whether we want to go into nocturnal animals. There's lots that's right and wrong with nocturnal animals, but there we go. It also puts, um, I also like the counsellor, which I'm surprised hasn't been mentioned anywhere else here. But I'll tell you what, um, you would get into an argument with David Jenkins straight away because I remember being on a podcast with David when the counsellor came out and he absolutely loves the counsellor. It's hot nonsense, the counsellor. I'll fight him to the death for that, to be honest. um, Is that a bad thing, though, hot nonsense? I think now, in hindsight, it's probably a lot of fun. I think watching it at the cinema at the time, yeah, I stand by it. Absolute hot nonsense. There's a... Javier Bardem with a pet cheetah. Oh, God, Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz doing things to a car windscreen. On the car windshield. Just no underwear and the splits, just for a very... Everything looks like it's shot at sunset. Yeah. Just, oh God, the cowboy hats for Brad Pitt. Actually, oh I'm talking myself into this more and more. Cowboy hats and Brad Pitt, that's another Ridley Scott movie. That's Solomon Louise, which I watched again for the first time the other night. Ridley Scott is, is up there for, if you were going to do one of best directors who've made the worst films. I mean, that's Ridley Scott's got to be in with that, hasn't he? What best films it? and worst films, because he's made some amazing films and some absolute shockers. Yeah, yeah. It's very hit and miss with him. Very hit and miss. What was that Egypt one? With Christian Bale. Uh, I want to say Prince of Egypt, but that's a Disney <laughs> that's, movie. That's a good movie. Gods and Kings, Exodus, Gods and Kings, <laughs> which got into quite a lot of trouble at the, at the time for Joel Edgerton. God's plural. Definitely not being Egyptian. And what else have we got on this list? Anybody else got anything from this list of uh, what people have suggested? Yeah, I'll go in for Thomas uh, Lafley, who says, easy, it's got to be Rob Marshall's Nine. Oh, yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis, Marianne Cotillard, Penelope Cruz, Nicole Kidman, Sophia Loren, Judy Dench. Uh, yeah, I remember seeing that, and that came off the back of Daniel Day-Lewis winning an Oscar, which doesn't narrow it down, actually, does it? Because whenever he brings a film out, he normally wins an Oscar. But I think it was after Lincoln, but it was a really... I remember reading at the time, Daniel Day-Lewis has agreed to be in a Rob Marshall musical. This is this is left field, and it did not suit him. We got another. We got another one for uh, the councillor Victoria Namova said, "Such a pity. If you take it scene by scene, it's good, but as a whole movie, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, so confusing and over the top. And another one with Michael Fassbender, Will Lord. I don't know why we didn't think of this earlier. Prometheus, but uh, yeah, has it got an amazing cast? I mean, I suppose so. Fassbender, Charlize Theron, Guy Pearce, Idris Elba, Sean Harris still couldn't save it. You know what? I didn't mind Prometheus at the time." That's until fine. the last Alien film came out and I hated that so much that it actually spoiled Prometheus for me <laughs> all over again. Have we got any others on the list that we've missed out? Um, oh, here's a good one from Sinead OB. I don't know if it's the worst ever or anything, but I feel like Aloha definitely deserves a spot on the list. <laughs> How that movie combined the considerable talents and charm of Emma Stone, Rachel McAdams, Bradley Cooper and John Krasinski and ended up being the end product it did is baffling. Yeah. And let us not forget that Emma Stone played an Asian woman. She's since come out and apologised quite profusely about that. But, you know... This is a decision that was made well, past that's... several people. Though. That's... No, like, uh, yeah, OK. Uh, I also just want to briefly just say, because I think this is another one for a potential shout-out, is All the King's Men or Collateral Beauty, says Alexander Larman. Unfortunately for her, Kate Winslet is in both. Here's another interesting one. I'm not saying whether Kate Winslet is or isn't the best actress in the world. You know, sometimes she can be amazing. But anyone who's anyone who say won Oscars and then done really appalling films. Well, this is like a trend, isn't it? One of my absolute favourites is Eddie Redmayne with um, Jupiter Ascending after we went for Theory of Everything. It's nuts in that though. He's absolutely nuts. He absolutely acts the. The bonkers out of that he that part. Does. What is it? He says, "I save lives. I create lives. I create lives." And I take it. <laughs> it's the levels. He's all he's all over this. Um, you can't really knock any film that has uh, Channing Tatum wearing eyeliner either, can you? Really? 
absolutely not. And Wolf is. Um, just before we move on to this week's films, let me also just briefly read out a letter. A letter. Uh, I'm sure we got this through the post from a postman <laughs> from Lewis Allen. It may be an email in reference to Bohemian Rhapsody because we talked about Bohemian Rhapsody last week. I think I may be in the minority when it comes to Bohemian Rhapsody because I really enjoyed it. Not sure you will be because, you know, it's doing all right at the box office, so Mm. people are enjoying it. I know it has its flaws, skipping over the other members of Queen. Is that a flaw? Uh, And it hints at what Freddie's like. (laughs) Sorry, Brian May. Sorry, Roger Taylor. Sorry, the other one. And it hints at what Freddie's lifestyle is like without ever going into full detail. I accept and do agree with those criticisms, but I enjoyed the film, the songs and Rami Malek's performance. On a separate note, could I ask you all, do you ever separate the art from the artist when watching a movie? Ooh. I'm not sure what what is what I'm not sure what Lewis means by that. The art from the artist. So I guess ignoring the context of what the artist has been up to, but I, I don't think that's something I have ever really prescribed to because I think that it's almost impossible to separate the two. I don't personally, but if you believe in something like auteur theory, if you believe in something like that, and that an artist's influence is like kind of. Uh, what dictates how mm. a movie is, you can't also just be like, but they may have done some bad stuff, but we've got to view the art on its own. It's a difficult question, but I think it's not really one... It's not really a thing that I agree with because I think it's important to remember um, what context a film was made in. And I think it's possible to acknowledge that maybe a director is a um, less-than-savoury character, mm. but you can appreciate the work. But also I think it's important to acknowledge that it was made by this person and that may have such and such. I think this is a question that actually is going to slightly disappear and the best example of this is is Woody Allen which is that for the last I mean let's be honest 15 years or so everybody's known that there are unsavoury things to be said about Woody Allen and yet everybody pressed on regardless because they wanted to be in his films and people went to see his films now his most recent film it's not even getting a release so I think we are at a stage where whether the public or whether the critics can separate the art from the artists the money people won't take that risk anymore. Yeah. I don't think we'll see another Woody Allen movie in cinemas. I really am starting to think that. And maybe the same with Roman Polanski. There's I- been an absolute shift in the in the industry, absolutely, and I don't it's questionable as to why they're not putting funding into the projects anymore, you know, based on the change in kind of the industry as it is. But um you know, I'm not going to be going out to see the next Louis C.K. film anytime soon, nor endorsing it in any shape or think, form. So. I don't think you'll get the chance. <laughs> no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Jesus wept. Let's move on. And actually, I do think that, you know, at the end of the programme, when we talk about Naked, maybe we will start talking about whether films have a place and a time and how things change with the perception of films over the course of time. So that's all the correspondence for this week, but keep them all coming in. Uh, we're going to talk about Peter Lou next. They're going to London. What, Bagley and that? They're going to see the Prince. Aren't they not? They are, man. Prince Regent it is. Oh, aye. They're taking him this, uh, what is it, father? Petition. Aye, a petition. What'll it say, father? It's a list of demands. Oh, aye. Our rights. Hallelujah. Prince Thingmaby ain't going to give paper for a scrap of paper that's come out way from Lancashire. Well, if he doesn't, they're going to take it to the king. He's as mad as a marcher. And they said if he won't do out, they'll lock him up. What, the king? Aye, the king and all his family. Who's going to lock up the king? Them three lads? No, the people will. And who's the people going to do that? That's just plain daft. At least they're doing something. They're not doing out. It's just more talk. I'll tell you what they're not doing, Nelly. They're not sitting on their backsides, waiting... I know, I know. I don't blame you for losing hope, man. I haven't lost hope, son. I'll never lose hope. 
Times is too hard to lose hope. Hope's all we've got. Peterloo, historical drama about the massacre at St Peter's Fields. It premiered at Venice. It played at the London Film Festival. This is a film about uh, a time under the reign of the Prince Regent. That's uh, the guy who would the guy the guy who would, the guy who would <laughs> later go on to be George the Fourth. So that's my man. The, the Prince Regent is technically um, running the country. He's played in this film by Tim McInerney, and his dad is George the Third, who's mad at the time. We never see him in this film. That's just to put it in historical context and this film is about how particularly in Manchester there was a movement uh, to get the vote uh, for everyone and when we say everyone of course we mean men Um, but working class men wanted the vote there was a huge movement and the film culminates and it's not a spoiler here because this is you know historical and Mike Lee's big beef with this is that we should all know this story already Mm. it culminates in a huge rally in St Peter's Fields in the centre of Manchester that has tragic events occur at this but obviously that's towards the end of the movie who wants to start talking about this (laughs) <laughs> eyes, eyes on the ground. Uh. No, I think it's. Um, I was definitely interested to find out more about what it was about. Mm. Um, you know, I was really quite ignorant into you know Peterloo and yeah. how absolutely devastating it was. And you know, I mean, I'm going to come to this later. I'm not sure he's necessarily the person to tell this story, but I'm uh-huh. glad that he's put his weight behind it so fully to yeah. bring that to the big screen. And I think you know, maybe not as many directors as Mike Lee would get the chance to do this. So I'm glad he's, you know, used this opportunity to do that. As a film, however... Um. <laughs> um, it's kind of like the experience of watching Peterloo is... Because uh, you say you're grateful for the opportunity to know about something. So I kind of see it as being like eating the largest Weetabix. Like, <laughs> with no sugar on it. Exactly. With no toppings or anything. It's just the... The dry biscuit. Yeah. It's incredibly dry. It's probably the most didactic film I've seen this year. I'm not I'm can't talk about it in the context of Mike Lee's work because I've pretty much only seen the two films that we're talking about this week. You're right. But it feels like you're just getting the longest history lesson of your life. It's wall to wall speeches. It doesn't give you much to grab onto. So it kind of has this documentarian approach in that it just takes a look at a wide range mm. of people's and viewpoints. But it never really gives you the grounding. So like Maxine Peake plays maybe the, I guess, the closest to a lead character along with Roy Keane are the only yeah. two recognisable people. Yeah. They maybe show between them there's probably like 15 minutes of screen time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you kind of just feel adrift as you get the um, viewpoints of these characters orated to you yes. in various crowds. And it's just, in some cases, it is just cutting between different factions Having meetings. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it so, is meeting. And I do appreciate it as a study of language and public speaking. <laughs> like, I will tell you that I, I do find things like that really interesting. And, um, you know, the, the thought and the writing that goes behind public speaking, and there is a lot of it. So, that I will try and make the best of that situation. I, I, I guess to a certain extent, that's sort of, that's slightly what it's about. But you're right. So, I mean, the opening scene is a soldier, a bugler on the battlefields at Waterloo, mm. who then comes home to the cobble streets of Manchester, so those dark satanic mills, and returns to his family. Maxine Peake is the matriarch. And so when you see him in that first scene, in a traditional narrative, you would think, OK, we are going to follow this guy's story. Well, for starters, he doesn't really speak anyway, but... He disappears for whole swathes of the movie. He yeah. comes back to his family. Maxine Peake is a matriarch. They are living a very, very tough life. And that is displayed to you. You do understand why they want their lives to be better. Yeah. But they also give Maxine Peake in particular an awful lot of expositionary 
dialogue. So there's a lot of, well, it's because of them corn laws, isn't it? <laughs> and you're just like, okay, were people really talking in detail about the corn yeah. laws while they were sitting around the table having breakfast? Or is this just to educate us on the fact that Britain wasn't importing yeah. corn at the time, which was making the working class poor? You know, you're getting it all presented to you, like you say. And then you cut to other characters in other scenarios and you never, you never have a through line. And I think a director of Mike Lee's standing, you have to see that as a decision. But if you didn't know it was a Mike Lee film, you might not. You might just go, it's missed the boat a bit here. It's very flat. It uh, felt to me like a satire. I feel like British comedy has done films like this, just no favours whatsoever. Because yeah. the way that, like you say, the exposition, the way that the scenes are set up, you're waiting for a punchline almost. And it doesn't help that some of the cast of Blackadder are in there. Like half of the time I was waiting for a punchline or I was waiting for Baldrick to show up. Well, the scenes of the Prince Regent in particular... Yeah. I just like it's it's Blackadder. Yeah. You know, this is a class warfare movie. Yeah. We know this. Mike Lee's politics are very well known. This is a film about a very important moment. But I would have liked a little bit more nuance in all of the characters, but particularly yes, the characters yeah. that aren't working class, because yeah. it just felt like they were pantomime villains. Oh, there's, oh, there's, a, there's a lot of gurning yeah. and pulling faces and doing weird speeches. They're so obviously telegraphed that everybody is a bad guy yeah. who's not working in a mill that it, it sort of had less of an effect on me, I think. Absolutely. It's just jowls and spit, isn't it? Yeah. That's literally <laughs> what it boils down to, just jowls and spit. They're these real, including, you know, the leeches of London, these big caricatures. And yeah, it just kind of took the shine off a little bit. Yeah, I'm so glad you said this because I came, is there something wrong with me? Like, yeah. everyone just seems so cartoonish and when you have the guys at the window and they're just like, oh, we must kill the poor. <laughs> and, and, um, yeah. It's heavy-handed to say the least. And then it's that cartoonishness isn't just reserved for the upper class characters but also the working classes that yeah. this film's supposed to cast a sympathetic eye on. So you get a whole bunch of people who don't get to do much more other than kind of spout jokes in very broad northern accents. And when you're not given a through line yes. with someone like the main character, it's so weird and alienating. Like, by the end, I'm just like, it's like horrible that's happened and you yeah. feel the kind of pain mm. of that later tragedy, but I feel like you could mine a lot more out of that because there's so many uh, great loose threads about the clashes between those two classes and what opportunities are afforded to people. So, like... One of the main characters is a fairly middle class orator who is very obviously like educated. Rory Kinnear. Yeah, Rory yeah. Kinnear. Yeah, he's, yeah. A, uh, he's educated. He's afforded these opportunities that a lot of the people in Manchester aren't afforded. Yeah. I really appreciated that thread, but I think by not having a kind of solid base, uh, or at least like kind of two parallels that were running throughout the whole film, it's difficult to actually. He's, he's the most nuanced character so he's playing this guy yeah. who's basically landed farmer so he sort of shouldn't be on the side of the working classes because he's on the other side of the fence and he's doing all right jack but he he is determined that there should be parliamentary reform the reason i say he's most nuanced though is because he's not actually that, that sympathetic a character he's very patronizing <laughs> towards the working classes yes. he dismisses the advice of almost everybody around him and when it comes to his huge speech in front of these you know hundred thousand people one of the things that i did think was a really interesting decision is you can't hear his speech yeah. and that is <laughs> And that is reflective of what the experience must have been like to be there. But we should talk about what happens, which, of course, um, at this great rally, the military became involved, the local yeomanry became involved, came in with swords drawn. Um, Anybody will know this from reading anything about the film in advance. And this is what the film is about. So this is essentially, at the end, a massive action sequence. Now, Mike Lee, I do think it's particularly interesting, you're not that familiar with his other work, because I think that's an amazing place to come into this film, because... 
He is a guy that is steeped in social realism and in working in films that are set in the present. They're always small scale. They're always a number of characters. The characters are built over weeks and weeks and months of rehearsal in intensive improvisations. A few years ago, he makes Mr. Turner. It's not his first historical film because he made a film about Gilbert and Sullivan. But these are very different movies. He cannot possibly be making them in the same way. His way of working is about the small and the intimate. When he's on a broader scale, this is a new canvas for him. Yeah. He's certainly never done a big battle scene before. Oh, he certainly hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I've read a lot of reviews that say that he does it in a really interesting way, but I feel I probably feel the same way as you. I, I was unstirred by oh, this sequence. I wouldn't go that... I think it was really well edited. It reminded me a lot of The Day of the Locusts right. in that kind of very manic hellscape. Imagine like the worst thing that could happen to the person you love and that's happened to them. Mm. So I think he really does play those guttural, you know, really violent, really upsetting, really ruthless acts, like each one after the other. So in terms of impact, mm. I think he goes for that. In terms of as a general spectacle, I think it was lacking. It almost felt quite cheaply made, really, was what sort of came across. The crowd scenes, there's a bit of CGI edge to the, the crowd scenes, it felt like. Yeah. But that's not, you know, that's the least of... I was looking at the final scene and just wondering where all the money went. Mm. I agree with Beth that it does have impact and kind of bearing witness to real-world tragedies where a policing force uh, like overexerts authority on peaceful protests. It's a very, it's a very timely fl- movie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. strangely so. It it's quite an upsetting scene, but I think the impact is dulled by some very strange staging. It's edited to be chaotic, which I think works in that scene's favour, but at the same time, the actual, the ca- actual camera work is confusing it seems out of view and maybe this is also partly to do with the fact that as we've already said you're finding it difficult to know whose story you're meant to be caring about at any given moment whereas if you had one person caught in that chaos who you were following so you do get maxine peak and her family but we're on a film podcast here we all love movies but there's a bit of me that actually wonders if this may have been better served by being like a separate parts in a in a big budgeted uh, tv you know like three separate hour-long episodes or something had you i feel like actually there's almost too much here to cram into yeah two hours worth of cinema having said that it didn't exactly fly by either oh man <laughs> no it oh. did not no absolutely I feel like you know he wanted to do a thorough job he certainly left no stone unturned and it's a very angry film but I just feel like if you try and sustain that anger over two and a half hours you're going to mm. lose you're going to lose it it's exhausting would you have yeah. rather seen somebody else handle this material yeah, I did think about that, but then I had a, I thought about who. I was thinking maybe Joe Wright at the earlier stages of his oh, career, so around about Atonement stage, Hannah stage. I'm probably going to get some responses to this, <laughs> but I thought the last series of This Is England had some really interesting cinematic... So Shane Meadows. Maybe, if you're well, taking that on, and I know that seems like a very yeah, simple it is comparison. A, it is an but, interesting comparison, because yeah. Shane Meadows' early career is you know, massively influenced by early Mike Lee, definitely. Would he have handled it differently? I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person who, who has put forward the idea that certainly that last 20 minutes or half an hour, I'd like to see Paul Greengrass get his teeth into it. Ooh. Somebody who knows how to make a political point. And I think part of the point is I felt like Mike Lee wanted to make a big political point, but wanted to do it in a way that felt like you were making these decisions yourself. And actually, sometimes I do want to have it rammed down my throat. Sometimes I do want to have some kind of big swell of emotion and some big, you know, I felt like I should have been horrified and outraged by this entire movie. Mm. And I think if I'd just read the story on the page, I would have been. But actually, 
I, I didn't, and I really wanted to. Yeah. There's not anything inherently wrong with a film being didactic, but when it's just staged in this way. I mean, speaking of staged, it feels like you're watching scenes from a stage play mm. and some things. You just watch the cameras just fixed, and you watch these guys walk into a room, yeah. yell at each other for a bit, yeah. walk out, move to the next scene. And it's just, when it's something like presented... So, like, kind of, I guess I'm making undynamically a word now if that doesn't <laughs> already exist, but it feels so kind of staid. And when you're presenting a history lesson in this kind of way and sustaining it over two and a half hours, you just threaten to lose the impact of the event that you're trying to learn about. And especially when it's wrapped up in these very I'm trying to think of a word for complicated. That's not complicated, but I guess complex. I'll use that now. <laughs> yeah, just a lot of very complex and convoluted dialogue. There's a joke that kind of pays off on this later on when a working class woman kind of walks into a women's suffrage meeting and this, uh, it's almost like a poetry slam the way the woman's talking. <laughs> yeah. And she just kind of sits there and just goes, like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, what yeah. are you saying? Um and that's, it's strange because that might be the closest yeah. to an audience surrogate yeah. that we've yeah. got. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Let's go to some scores. Can we give it some scores, please? Who wants to go first? Nah. <laughs> Okay, okay. Yep. Uh, so I went in with three, just purely driven by my ignorance of the subject matter. Um, so, you know, I was very interested, at least. I'd heard, you know, you try not to listen to reviews too much before you go in, and I hadn't heard great mm. stuff, but I thought, you know, I'll give it a go. And I'll give it three just because I didn't... I thought the last 20 minutes, you know, it wasn't necessarily the best looking, but I feel like, you know, all tied together in the end. Mm. I just wish it had got there sooner. And then two, just in, in hindsight, it just hasn't stuck with me since. And I'm just yeah. a little bit cross of invested that much time in it, to be honest. OK, here we yeah. go. Campbell. I'm more or less along the same lines. I think going in, it was a two because I hadn't watched Mike Lee film before and I had not heard great things about this. I wanted to give it a chance, but then when you're looking at a two and a half hour runtime, it's hard to get (laughs) riled up about anything. During, I'd go with a three because I didn't, it wasn't the worst thing I'd ever seen. And of course, it was a part of history that I'm interested to learn about. I liked its comparison of these two, of this kind of class warfare and the idea that reform is sometimes treated as like treasonous and unpatriotic by a government. So I liked those kind of threads through, but I just don't think they ever really connected, which is why I kind of landed on the two at the end, because I think it's just something that just never really comes together. And that's a lot of time to try and chew on something and never really... We all know we all know how anticipation can really skew the way the rest of it goes. And I do think the fact that you two both had lower expectations than me might have been part of the fact that... I mean, I'm the host. I don't think my scores are important. But I was really looking forward to it. I would have said a four on anticipation. As a result, I'm giving it a two for both of you. others because Ooh. I felt really slightly let down by it. Yeah. But then, like I say, that is what anticipation does. Uh, we're going to talk about Mirai next. So let's talk about Mirai. Um, This is uh, Japanese animation. Uh, Of course, we're all very familiar with the work of Studio Ghibli, but this isn't a work of Studio Ghibli. And I think this might be the first Japanese animation that I've seen that isn't Studio Ghibli. So it's nice, in a way, to get a shot at something else. This is directed by uh, Mamoru Hosada, and it's a story about a little boy in contemporary Japan. How old is he? I couldn't quite figure it out. Two, three? He's a toddler. He's four years old, yeah, I think. And it starts with his mum and dad having a new baby baby and it's about his difficulties with coming to grips with having a new baby and it goes off as you would expect in this kind of film in fantastical ways Mm. what do we think of Mirai? As an older sibling which I think Campbell is as well (laughs) this film spoke to me in a big way I'm younger 
Oh, well. We'll see what that means. <laughs> I think some of my earliest memories do really resonate with some of the scenes in the film where he's just vying for attention mm. through any means necessary, yeah. which is a toddler you tend to do. I mean, I do it now. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I just thought it really beautifully captured the family dynamic of having young children. I don't have children, but, you know, I do have friends. Uh, Michael, actually, who hosts the, the podcast, usually he's got a new you know, new little baby and, yeah. you shout know, out. being the... Yeah, shout out, Michael. Um, of course, that's why it's not here, isn't it? Yeah. Congratulations, Michael. We should have said this, like, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. Congratulations. <laughs> but, you know, just capturing, you know, that moment of, of having young children and, you know, the anguish that comes with that and the joy that comes with that. Mm. Um, mm. And it all kind of comes in big, messy succession. And it's a really, really beautiful look into that, which I, I was fully on board with. And what's amazing about that is it sounds like we're talking about a piece of kind of social realism. And yet, actually, I mean, it is at times. And, and then it also goes off into these fantastical... Dream sequences. Yeah. It's like if Coriator made a time travel movie. Got it. <laughs> um, but it's funny that you mentioned Studio Ghibli because it's not only not a Studio Ghibli man, he's a dude who got sacked by Studio yeah. Ghibli. Mm. Like he was originally meant to direct Howl's Moving Castle. People were saying, oh, he's like the next Miyazaki. And then he got replaced by Miyazaki on Howl's Moving <laughs> Castle, which is just a kick in the teeth. But I love Hosoda's work. He does this really wonderful thing of imbuing like just very real situations with like this weird fantasy yeah. um yeah. so he's covered like things like coming of age and kind of learning to kind of look outside yourself in the girl who leapt through time there's kind of a more family stuff with wolf children i don't know how to place summer wars in this kind of dialogue but that's a very good uh, film also but like beth this really resonated with me because i an older brother shout out to angus um, <laughs> shout but, out because you used to be horrible to him when you were <laughs> oh yeah no um, this is a this is an apology podcast um, there's a scene in mirai where even just trying to help his new sibling the four-year-old boy who has a new sister, Mirai. Um, he starts throwing these toys yeah. into her cot, yeah. which is something I've done in the past where he just keeps going and, and he's just like, what's wrong with you? Why won't you play with any of this? And then it gets to the point where he gets agitated and starts like just messing around and upsets them. And there's, a, you know, just growing up with a sibling, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of hostility tied up in this like kind of close companionship. And I love how the film covers like kind of the inception of that and how that kind of ripples through time. Mm. And it's insane how it just affords the characters these opportunities to learn about each other in a way that just real life doesn't afford. So yeah. basically there are like these fantasy sequences. The yeah. first one is he meets this guy in a long coat with long hair and whiskers and he, and he realises that it's actually the manifestation of the, of the family dog. Yeah. And he tells him this is what it was like for me when you came along. You know, when you came, I was the king of this house and then you came along when you were a baby so now you're just having to deal with what I had to deal with. He also sort of travels forwards and backwards in time. He meets his sister as a teenager yeah. and she sort of guides him round it says something really beautiful about the positive aspects of being siblings yeah. as well that the way their relationship is drawn is is really lovely and he also goes on to meet other people both in his past and in his future one of the things i really liked is there's zero explanation given as to how yes. or why this is happening which yeah. which i loved it's not even as clear as 
this could just be in his imagination. I mean, it could be, but it doesn't always make sense if it is. No, I think what, the only thing that's used to tie these together is when he, he has a bit of a strop, when he has yeah. a little bit of a paddy, he goes out into his garden and he throws things around and then that's someone will appear behind him. And and it just, it plays with so many different dimensions. There's some really beautiful use of architecture in one sequence he's underwater. Yeah. In another, there's, oh God, just these stunning moments where he visits his unknowingly visits his grandfather and or his great grandfather and there's a whole bit around mechanics and the mechanics of um, aerodynamics and you know just each after the other you travel through to this next dimension with him and everyone's more beautiful than the last I wouldn't mind seeing his version of How's Moving Castle to be honest yeah. I would yeah. love to see what that looks like not to sacrifice Miyazaki's but yeah. I'd love to see what that would have looked like in concept at least because Every single dimension he goes through is more beautiful and and more thought out than the last. And I think some of it is a little bit inaccessible to us in that there's some real child's humour in there. I think he really is trying to reach out to everyone he possibly can. And there's some sort of slapsticky bits there that went a bit over my head, Hmm. but I'm sure would land with... I mean, you watched it with your kids, Nick, didn't you? I I did. You know, I sort of made a decision to do that. It was like, shall I watch it in the afternoon on my own, on my laptop? Or I actually got a projector screen up. We watched it on a big screen. I watched it with the kids. And... They really, really loved it. They absolutely... And the most surprising thing was my kids are... Well, Flo's nine. It's a birthday tomorrow. Happy birthday tomorrow, Flo. And and Billy is six. And um, the version that I'd got was the subtitle version. Now, when that started, I was like, oh, God. <laughs> I was really hoping this would be the dubbed version for the kids' sake. And do you know what? They are, you should try subtitle movies with your kids if you've shied away from it because it was surprising how Flo, I think, could read it quickly enough. Billy, I don't think he could, although he wouldn't admit to it, but it didn't <laughs> matter. And that, of course, is an interesting thing about watching a film that is so visual. There are a couple of moments in it that are a little bit scary um, for young kids just because it's animated and it's a family film doesn't mean that it's not going to be scary there are a couple of scary moments but also Billy said that there were two moments that he didn't like one which was a big kind of shock scare moment which I won't spoil for you the other bit was he said I didn't like it when he threw the train at her head and he kept going on about it and I can't help thinking that that was something to you know that really resonates with children of that age. They understood what it was like. They understand what those sibling relationships are like because they're in it now. (laughs) (laughs) But what was great was that I felt like we all sat there and we all got different things out of it and the same things out of it, if that makes sense. I mean, you know, these films really do deserve to find a wider audience that they do. I think a lot of adults are watching these films as a piece of art and yet they work as entertainments for kids as well. Yeah, I think we're starting to see, especially with um, Your Name last year, Mm. I think we're starting to see a lot more accessible anime come through and it's getting easier to watch as well, which I love. I think Your Name is on Amazon Prime at the right. moment, which I really recommend if you can go and watch that. The most teen drama-y anime. <laughs> Super emo. But, I mean, you know what, it's accessible. And, and for those reasons alone, Nick, I think it's great to sit down and watch with all ages. Also, they're doing things uh, that, that you don't get in other, other family films. You know, we have got to an age where most of the product coming out of America is of a very specific style. Mm. And, and that's not to say, you know, obviously, I am a huge fan of Pixar. Who isn't? Because the quality levels are so high most of the time. But... You know, it's that or it's your Hotel Transylvania, Madagascar, which, you know, the kids like those as well. But to actually 
dig into what it's really like to live in a family in the 21st century, I think a lot of places around the world that's considered something that's not really part of the remit of family films, and yet it should be, and it is, and it works really well. It's a nice alternative to that sort of thing because Hosseter plays with so many different styles. You mentioned Dimensions earlier, and there's a really interesting use of 3D animation along with the kind of hand-drawn stuff. He has this kind of virtual camera move that like moves up the house. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. gorgeous! It's yeah, a, it's a beautiful yeah. trick where it's like kind of showing the um, father going through household chores, and it yeah. shows him in one room, and then the kind of virtual three D camera like pans across, mm. and then he's in another room, and then he's in another room. You said that it's kind of easy to grasp even without understanding the subtitles mm. because it's such a kind of visually motivated thing. And it's great that Hosseter plays with so many different styles and actual <laughs> literal dimensions yeah. in making this film. It's always kind of been his thing that he, even within anime, he has a very different approach to things where, like, say, lots of anime uses like a background and like a panning mm. shot. He will remove that and just throw a character into a blank space. Yeah. So it's so creative and. It's great that films like this are much more accessible now because it's good to have things that aren't just your Hotel Transylvania yeah, movies. Yeah. I will say, actually, the last, not to give anything away, the last 20 minutes or so of this feels like the antidote to Peterloo. Like, the last 20 minutes to <laughs> yeah. this film, it's like the heaven to Peterloo's hell. Like, it's <laughs> a real... Incredibly life-affirming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. It's it's almost like a, it's a wonderful life in, in kind of anime like, form. I don't yeah. think my um, wife would mind me saying that she cried... And I felt myself welling up a bit as well I because cried. The, you know we all cried, we all cried. <laughs> it but you know, the, you know what this film has to say about family—not only your family now, but where you come from and where you're going—is is really beautiful. Yeah, having time travel is that. I'm cry now. Yeah, <laughs> I love goodness. you guys. Yeah. It's all okay. Hold hands. Um, <laughs> But there's a moment that I thought was really beautiful when he sees... He doesn't know it's his grandfather, like you said earlier, mm. but he calls him dad. He thinks and yeah. he, thinks it's his, he sees his father in this person and it makes you think about how aspects of people that may have long passed still live on yeah. with those who have succeeded them. So qualities that they've taken on from other people. And what Kun has afforded is the chance to take on qualities from people that he'd never get the chance to meet. Yeah. And it's just a really beautiful like kind of look about how... Like this kind of rippling effect of that people have on your life including your siblings I think Mirai might do quite well out of the scores here can I just say just finally if you're very shallow they also live in a beautiful house with beautiful things in it if you're into architecture and uh, anyway uh, yeah so let's do some scores sure so I'm not as well versed as Campbell is on this but I have seen The Boy and the Beast which I recommend which was his last film so that was enough for me to come in with a four it looked you know I'm a big anime fan anyway and, and was very intrigued by this so four Four, it absolutely held up and then some. And four again in, in hindsight, just what a beautiful film. I think this is my film of the week, un- undoubtedly. Easy. Campbell? Yeah, weebs unite. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of Hosseter. I started kind of from the beginning a little while ago with um, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, which I'd also recommend. So I went in at a four, came out a five, I think. It's affected me very profoundly. So I think I'd go with a five at the end as well. Um Aww. I was. Uh, Sometimes you've got to do it. Yeah. I wanted to call my family. Step afterwards. out there. Oh. Oh. Call your brother. Call Angus. Well, I was with my family. I would have said anticipation wise it was a three, but then, uh, you know, I so enjoyed it at the time. And then afterwards, the kids, and they always do this with me, which I actually find a little bit annoying. How many, <laughs> how many stars are you going to give it, Danny? How many stars are you going to give I said, well, it's probably a really strong four. I said with my serious critic's head on. They went, they were like, what? <laughs> so it's a five, isn't it? Because I do what my kids tell me to do. Yep. 
That's Mirai. We're going to talk about <laughs> Mike Lee's uh, 1993 nihilist classic, Naked, after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. So how did you get here then? Well, basically, there was this little dot, right? And the dot went bang, and the bang expanded. Energy formed into matter. Matter cooled. Matter lived. The amoeba to fish. The fish to fowl. The fowl to froggy. The froggy to mammal. The mammal to monkey. The monkey to man. A more mass of mat. Quid pro quo. Memento mori. Add infinitum. Sprinkle on a little bit of grated cheese. And leave under the grill till doomsday. See, you haven't changed. He's a f genius, disguiser. Take it you've met my wicky wacky friend, Sophie. No, actually. We haven't been formally introduced, have we, love? No. No, we've been sat here in embarrassing silence all afternoon. So that's uh, David Thewlis, and I think you could also hear Leslie Sharp in that clip in Naked, 1993. I mean, if you're as old as I am, I can't really believe that it's 25 years ago, but I was a big fan of Mike Lee at this time. He was very celebrated British author. Well, still is. That's why Peter Lee's such a big release this week. But for some reason, it passed me by naked at the time, so, which is useful because it meant I was coming to this fresh, having loved the film that he did before, having loved the film that he did afterwards. So it was an interesting place to start. Had either of you two seen Naked before? No, I had not. Yes, I think we're all first-timers here. Fresh. Oh. Fresh. So, um... <laughs> 
So basically, it's about David Thewlis. He plays this character called Johnny. And, well, I mean, we sort of remiss not to say how it opens, which is that you rush down a dark alley and see this character. You don't know it's him at the time because it's from the back, raping a woman. Then he runs off, gets in a car, drives down to London. And before you know it, he's back at the house of his ex-girlfriend, played by Leslie Sharp. But a lot of this film is him taking to the streets of London and spending the night walking the streets of London and, and the people that he encounters on this kind of night odyssey through the dark streets of Soho and other parts of central London. Lots of different characters, lots of little kind of interactions and this motor mouth, as I say, nihilist character Johnny at the heart of it. I'm getting some really unhappy looking faces in front of me. It's a deeply unpleasant film, intentionally so. I think this is something that I'm going to need to kind of stew on for a while because I think there's strong messages in there, but like when a film is kind of bookended by sexual assault by the main character and it's it's very much intentionally alienated. It. It's peppered throughout yeah. the entire film as several cases of sexual assault and the other main character the only other character that really gets more spotlight is this kind of sexual predator whose name I've forgotten. Well he's called Jeremy at some point Jeremy and Sebastian, Sebastian at others. <laughs> yeah, just this really terrible sexual predator that kind of lures women in willingly and then turns them against their will and then that's when he attacks them. So it really is worth noting that it's a deeply unpleasant, really quite you know, if this is It's a very difficult watch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he's not just a rapist, he's also a man who sees himself as kind of better than the people he's incessantly In- rambling at. Yeah. The sort of person who would maybe call himself like an intellectual, but really he comes off as more of a ranting conspiracy theorist. Dick? And that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you said it, Nick, so I'm going to go with jerk. it. But um, I mean, if you take away, and I don't do this lightly, obviously, but I think if you remove that aspect of the film, because it's set in London and it's set in East London, not the East London we know now, absolutely not. Although, mm. I mean, I went for dinner in East London last night and there were a good many Johnnies just walking up and down the street, just <laughs> yeah. in the long coats with the floppy hair that think they know everything. Mm. So it's kind of a timeless character in that respect. I feel like he would have been in his peak in the early noughties when the Libertines were at their That's interesting. Their peak. This guy at the worst college party we've ever been to. <laughs> I, think what, I think what's interesting about it is that an exploration of this character, you know, you, exploring any character, no matter how dark, has some kind of validity. But I think what's changed in the last 25 years is when you get Mike Lee and David Thewlis mm. creating this character and then telling us all about this character and every female character in the film pretty much doesn't have agency and is normally subject to some kind of sexual attack at some stage. 25 years later, I know this has become a cliche at the moment, but it really does feel like we live in different times to that now. So that secondary character that you talk about, Jeremy, Sebastian, whatever he's called, he's very clearly what would have been called at the time a yuppie. He's a property landlord. He drives a Porsche. His scenes are in restaurants and him getting a massage, that kind of thing. Again, Mike Lee is making a very blunt class point here that feels now, to me, uncomfortable, which is he's saying, here are these two sexual predators, (laughs) but this guy's not that bad because look at this other guy. And I'm not sure that... Holds up these days. No. Also, this Jeremy Sebastian character is, is, again, this relates to Peter Lou, but not many other Mike Lee films. He's a very cartoonish character in order, it feels like, to make Johnny a more real and rounded character. Yeah. I mean, there's been comparisons, you know, at the time of the film, as, you know, even 
comparing Johnny to like an East London Jesus going around and yeah. speaking with the people, with speaking with the masses, mm. trying to change them. Yeah, no, I think you make a really good point. Also, it came out the year before Four Weddings and a Funeral, so it's not even like <laughs> right, he went yeah. to London at the time. I mean, I know that um, Richard Curtis's Four Weddings is a completely unachievable London, and again, but it just shows kind of that city was viewed in so many different ways at the time. Yeah. It was beautifully choreographed, I found at times, the Ewan Bremner scene in on Brewer Street where... Um, so Ewan Bremner's amazing, isn't he? Isn't he's, he the best? Yeah. But there's the scene where, you know, he's kind of this, I think they're probably homeless, yeah. this young couple who have, have travelled down from Scotland to live in London. And there is a really beautifully choreographed sequence where they are just beating the life out of each other around mm. David Thewlis mm. as he kind of like looks down and looks onwards and, and it is moments like that where you think oh I sort of see where the best director or what it can came from just through sequences like that I suppose was at the time seen as very beatific but um, in terms of like social commentary today it's pretty disgusting Well the first 20 minutes when Johnny's interacting with women I was just thinking I don't want to watch this film I actually want to switch it off I was thinking I don't really want to watch it and actually because I had to persevere and mm. because we we're going to be talking about it today the middle scenes the the ones where he's you know that scene with you and Bremner and also the other scene with the security guard played by a brilliant actor Peter White I thought that was really interesting really sort of came alive and then again afterwards you sort of think well you yeah, know it's the interactions with men though that this film is finding interesting and then we're back to another interaction with a woman who's just going to sexually harass again and now I don't want to watch it anymore I agree that the middle block is where I think most of the value of the film lies because I imagine it's just a view of like an underclass that's like left to eat each other basically mm. if you're saying it, Four Weddings and a Funeral came out the next year <laughs> I don't imagine many directors would be looking in that direction so it's like this kind of class of people that we're told doesn't really exist. Like, don't worry about them. And the very blunt point that also terrible people exist in the upper class too is there as well. But again, it's difficult to see where the um, point of Johnny's like repeated sexual assaults on women... It's difficult to tell where the film's sympathy lies sometimes, it's- where... like. Are you meant to identify with Johnny? Are you, are you meant to see him as right it's about in some cases? Power, I think, as is with most sequences like this. It's reminded me most recently of Holiday, which is from a, a filmmaker called Isabella Eckloff. I'm not uh, too yeah. sure when it's out, but it's been made very controversial because of a very steady, very long scene of sexual assault. And it's about that deconstruction of power. And I think that's very much what the case is here. It's about them claiming power through any means necessary. With Johnny, it's a very mm. quick, violent take of power. With mm. um, Jeremy, whoever his name is, it's a slow, very meticulous, very malicious case of unravelling this person and taking that power from them. I think that is one of the film's strengths. As in, like, because there's also a, a moment when Johnny just kind of receives a beating, like that, seemingly for no reason. That's part of the film. But also, you want him to get a justified beating. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's basically provoked a huge number of people in the film to no consequence, and then when he does finally get beaten up... It's for no reason. Well, yeah, this, that's the most frustrating thing. There's no, there's no redemptive qualities. I mean, after Jeremy, he attacks one of um, three housemates and then he just sits in the house, lays out with it in his pants. Mm. Just because really he horrific owns the house. pants as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, we'll take that as well. But um, just that there's no redemptive qualities. There's no comeuppance. He's just stretched out on this um, sofa with his hands behind his head. I thought your point about people just kind of exerting whatever power they can over this is very interesting and kind of integral to how this film plays out. Um, especially like with the aforementioned beating, like just 
to show that you're not at the bottom of the food chain and like the kind of mentality that capitalism strands people in. Uh, yeah, I think that view is the strongest part of the film. I think that it perhaps takes the sexual assaults too lightly and could go further in unpacking them, especially yeah. in giving the women of the film more of a voice. I wouldn't say that they don't have it's a great agency. Cast but as well. yeah. It's such a great cast yeah. to waste. There is, there is one scene between Catherine Cartridge and Leslie Sharp where they're in a bar and they do actually have a couple of really interesting lines. Isn't it awful we're talking about a two hour film you say, oh, there's some women who have two interesting lines. But they, but they do they are talking <laughs> they are talking about men and they do talk about how men hate women and they say they hate you when you're strong, they hate you when you're weak, mm. they hate you when you're clever and they hate you when you're dumb. And at that moment, you're like, yes, here's something yeah. interesting happening. And yeah. then yeah, yeah, yeah. cut to Johnny, you know, being horrible to somebody else. Yeah. So, you know, you get that brief moment. It brings us back to what we were saying about art and artists as well, is that, you know, of course, we should be just sitting here thinking about the film, watching the film just absolutely as a standalone property. But it does feel like if a woman was in the director's chair now, this is a different story. And perhaps this is a, you know, that would be a more interesting take on masculinity. But when everybody involved in the film is a man, and nearly every character in the film is a man, yeah, that does change things, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's something in itself is that it just doesn't hold up today. That just shows how attitudes have shifted, how women in the industry have shifted. I think that in itself is notable and, you know, gives you hope more. But... Get Andrea Arnold to do a remake of Naked. Nay. Yes, please. <laughs> Let's get Lynn Ramsey on the case. Yeah. Like, I'd love that. It's interesting because it feels like in that regard, Peterloo is stranded in a similar kind of stasis where it's a universal suffrage, but just for the guys. But the film never really shows any interest in unpacking that entirely, where it's just like it kind of pays lip service to the women of yeah. the film. And then it's just like, right, you see them, let's uh, get back to the good stuff. Well, <laughs> I, I listened to a bit, there's a director's commentary on the ancient DVD that I've got. I couldn't be bothered sitting through the whole film twice, so I only dipped in a little bits in and out. And one of the defences that, that Mike Lee makes about uh, the female characters, he said, it, you know, it can't be misogynist because it has these great actresses like Leslie Sharp and Catherine Cartridge who wouldn't have done it if it was a misogynist film. But that doesn't accommodate the way that this film and many of Mike Lee's films are made, which is that you have individual improvisations about your character and you don't know anything about what's happening in the other scenes of the movie. So, yes, Leslie Sharp and Catherine Cartridge might have gone in with good intent. Maybe they'd still defend it now. I can't speak for them. But they don't know what Johnny's doing in every other scene of the film, do they? I I think Leslie Sharp did come and defend the uh, film from that uh, past accusation of misogyny mm. and like a lack of agency when she says like yes no like, this character has agency but I guess like I'm not really that familiar with Lee's improvisational approach but mm. yeah if she's very much isolated in that space I guess it's hard to tell how much of like your will is imposed on the film uh, that said with the improvisation it's astonishingly kind of well choreographed I guess which is the yeah, kindest thing I can say stylistically spot on everything else <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I would also say there's a huge body of work from Mike Lee, and it is interesting. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting that we're talking about two films that that I really didn't like. But that's not to say there aren't really interesting things to see in his career. If you don't know Mike Lee, don't necessarily take these no, two films this as is, this is what Mike Lee's like. He is capable of of writing brilliant, like Happy Go Lucky is astounding. Yeah. Yeah. You know, such a beautiful collaboration with Sally Hawkins. So mm. he's capable of doing it. It's just this wasn't the film to showcase yeah. that at all. I think some of the class commentary and in rare spots, the um, women of the film get some really interesting things to say, but then it's kind of obscured by a lot of fairly unpleasant and sometimes interminable stuff. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure I'm going to be able to say anything coherent about it because I'm still reeling a bit. 
it's kind of like a film that I think demands a rewatch, but also I never want to see it again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's an unpleasant watch. That it, it's that opening. It's very hard to get past that opening. It really hangs but there, over the but, rest of but there we go. Uh, okay, uh, that's Naked Don uh, for this week. That was this week's film club movie. On next week's Truth and Movies, we're going to be talking... Well, we, not any of us. Um, but, but whoever the hell is sitting in these seats next week, we'll be talking about Steve McQueen's Widows, also talking about Wildlife. I think that's the directorial debut of Paul Dano, based on the book by Richard Ford. And also Set It Off, which is uh, another female crime heist movie in the week of Widow States. So all... Women with Guns in Banks on next week's Truth and Movies. Thank you very much to both of you for some really, really interesting <laughs> conversations about what's not always been easy stuff to talk about. So thank you, Camberley. Thank you, Beth. Thanks, Nick. Thank uh, you. And, well, I was going to say, we'll be talking to you next week. As I say, we won't. We'll all be listening, though, next week. Truth and Movies is a seven digital production. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.